Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. And we're going to look at the seventh of seven churches there in Revelation. It's the uh, letter to Laodicea. <clears throat> the letter to, to the church in Laodicea. So I was thinking about this tonight and the characterization of this church, it reminded me of an old song, that I, a Christian song that I heard. And I had to, I had to do a little digging to go, well, I, this person sung it, but it wasn't original with them. Who sung it? Who sung it? And anyway, has anybody remembered DeGarmo and Key? Am I the only one? Okay, I saw a head nod. Okay, DeGarmo and Key had a song called Casual Christian. <clears throat> Here's the, the lyrics. I'm going to read it. I'm not going to sing it. I'll do you a favor says, uh, it's more than a wish, more than a daydream, more than just a passing whim. Yes, I've said this all before a thousand times or more. I don't want to waste my life in chains of sin. And the chorus says, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a casual Christian. I don't want to live, I don't want to live a lukewarm life because I want to light up the night with an everlasting light. I don't want to live the casual Christian life, Okay. Uh, there's another reason why I don't sing that. I try to sing it the way. Never mind. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I don't want to be a casual Christian. And really, you know what? None of us should want to be a casual Christian. Um, I remembered a, a quote from David Platt who said, We do not have time to waste our lives coasting out casual, comfortable Christianity. And so... That's for sure. I don't want to live a casual Christian life. But what you're going to find as we look at Laodicea and the church that was there is they were very complacent and they were very uh, apathetic. Um, I saw a, uh, saw a saying one time about a sign that was posted at a bus stop. It, it said this, the trouble with this world is apathy. And then someone wrote below it, who cares? Um, in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, he writes about uh, the, the devil is having a conversation with his nephew, Wormwood, uh, whom he's training to, uh, to serve him in the world. And he says this to Wormwood. He says, I, the devil, will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to provide me with people who do not care. I mean, think about that. Um, Albert Einstein said, The world is a dangerous place, not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing. So, I guess that's a good reason to say you need to remember and vote, right? Vote, vote's coming up here in a couple weeks, and I was always told if you didn't vote, you didn't have a right to complain. But anyway, make sure you do that. Uh, but on Laodicea, um, a little bit of background about the city. It was situated in a neighborhood of hot springs, and emitting lukewarm water from the mouth was a figure which its citizens could easily understand. There was a famous uh, school of medicine that was there that produced, among other things, a remedy for weak eyes and eye salve. Uh, they also had uh, wool there for garments, and the city was famous for its wealth. According to Herschel Hobbes, he says the city of Laodicea was a rich manufacturing, trading, and banking center so wealthy 
was it that when it was partially damaged, when the city was partially damaged by an earthquake in AD 60, it needed no financial help from Rome to rebuild? Think about that. It was such an affluent community that there were enough people in the community that, that could come together and they told the government, no, we don't need any help, we got this. Um, three Roman roads converged there, making it a city of prominence. It was the center of worship of the god of medicine, and so they had a great medical center there. Uh, all of these things served to make it a city of complacency, of self-satisfaction, and uh, the spirit of the city obviously invaded the, the church. So look, if you will, in Revelation 3, we'll begin in verse 14. Um, Jesus says, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, the letter starts out just like the previous six have. Uh, Jesus is talking, um, and he's uh, got a word for the church, and he refers to himself as the Amen the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. And um, it seems here that Jesus is going to tell them the truth. Even, even if it hurts, he is the faithful witness. That is a throwback to Revelation 1.5, where in Revelation 1.5 it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness... Um, and then, of course, the amen is the Hebrew equivalent of faithful and true. And then the originator of God's creation. I thought that was interesting. Um, that mean, That's a reminder that he's the true source of all things. And um, if you're jotting this down, you might want to make a note of this. In Colossians chapter 4, at the very end of that letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, Colossians 4.16 he says, after this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So from that one verse there in Colossians 4.16, we know basically that Paul wrote a letter to the church in Colossae. He wrote one to the church in Laodicea and at least the one that we have, which is the one to Colossae, he says, y'all need to swap and read what I said to each other, Okay. And so what is it that, that comes to mind in the letter to the church at Colossae? It's chapter 1, Colossians 1, 15, where it's referring to Jesus as the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by Him in heaven on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Okay, everything was created by Him. All things have been created through Him and for Him. There you go. And so when you read there in Revelation uh, 3, that He is the faithful and true witness, the Amen, the originator of God's creation. It's a reminder of who you're talking to. This is our Lord Jesus Christ who created all things, were created by Him, through Him, and for Him. He is the faithful, true witness. He is the Amen. He's the final word, the final authority, the final say. And so this is the Jesus that is fixing to speak to this church in Laodicea. And then we begin the assessment. As he always does, there in verse 15, he starts out with, I know your works. And he does. He knows everything about us inside and out. He knows our actions as well as our intentions and our motivations. I know your works. He says, you are neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. Kind of like that uh, boy that shook the preacher's hand. And he said that was a, a warm sermon, preacher. And he finally said, a warm sermon? What's that? He says, not too hot. Right? Lukewarm. It's not hot. It's not cold. <laughs> Don't use that against me now. <laughs> uh, and he says, I'm going to vomit or spit you out of my mouth. Um, here's the thing. Laodicea had two neighbors. Uh, they had... Colossae in one direction, they had Hierapolis in another direction. Hierapolis had hot waters, uh, which possessed medicinal effects back in those days. And then Colossae had cold water. Um, and uh, you think about it, hot water is great for a bath, isn't it? And cold water is good for refreshment. But who wants to drink lukewarm water? I, I know I don't. And Laodicea had, had no good uh, water source. They had to pipe it in, and by the time it arrived, it was lukewarm, and people would spit it out. And so when Jesus refers to something that's in their culture, in their everyday experience, and says, you know what? When I see you, it's like lukewarm water, and I'm ready to spit out. Now, you might say, there's just no nice way to say something like that, is it? But that's exactly what Jesus says to them. He says, you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and I'm going to vomit or spit you out of my mouth. Now, this image of spit or even vomit, either one, uh, same difference, I guess, if you think about it. Um, Michael Kukendall says this. He says, this image of revulsion is mentioned often in the Old Testament. For example, the prophets use the the word to describe God's judgment on the nations. And just as God vomited out of the promised land, the previous uh, generation uh, that lived there, as well as his own people, so too he threatens a similar judgment on the Laodiceans who do not take their walk with Christ seriously. Uh, let me give you a couple examples in the Old Testament. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 18, verse 25, there in the Old Testament law, here's what it said. Leviticus 18, 25, the land has become defiled 
and that God is talking. He says, so I am punishing it for its iniquity, and the land will vomit out its inhabitants. But you are to keep my statutes and ordinances. You must not commit any of these detestable acts, not the native or the alien who resides among you. For the people who were in the land prior to you have committed all these detestable acts, and the land has become defiled. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it has vomited out the nations that were before you. Now that's, that's quite an image, isn't it? But God is telling his people Israel in the Old Testament that he was removing the people, the Amorites and Amalekites and all those other ites. He was removing them from the land because of their depravity and their sin. But he says, I'll do the same thing to you if you don't obey my word and follow me. And then in Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet in 51 verse 34, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has set me aside like an empty dish. He has swallowed me like a sea monster. He filled his belly with my delicacies. He has vomited me out. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Remember the Babylonian captivity when the uh, Israelites were removed from their land. And uh, God is saying that he was vomited out. So quite an image there. I know many of us have just ate. Sorry about that. But that's how God reacts to lukewarm Christians, to casual Christianity, to, to people who are um, complacent in their walk with the Lord. Then we get really down to it. Here, here's the real heart of it all in verse 17. He says, For you say, and at that point, the Lord is basically reading their mail. He already knows their heart. He knows their mind. And he says, you say, in other words, here's what you say about yourself. You say, I'm rich. I become wealthy and need nothing. See, again, because of the affluent community, the people in the church there at Laodicea, they were blessed. They were uh, comfortable. And because they were blessed and they were comfortable, they became complacent. And quite frankly, they thought, hey, we don't need anything. I mean, they didn't even need they didn't even need a bailout, if you will, to put this in contemporary terms. They didn't even need a bailout from the government when an earthquake came because they were self-sufficient. Not that that's bad, but the attitude crept into their heart and they said, look, I'm rich, I become wealthy, I don't need anything. And that ultimately meant I don't need God. And he says, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Wow, what a diagnosis, right? Um, one commentator makes the point that this, the church in Laodicea, is the only church of the seven that, we're, that we've looked at here in Revelation 2 and 3. This is the only church about which Jesus has nothing good to say. Now think about that. He has nothing good to say about this church. It's not that he's against this church. He just has nothing to commend them Nothing good to say. Um, another commentator said they judge themselves to be in good condition, but Christ reveals the truth that they're poor, blind, and naked. Probably ironic references, respectively, to Laodicea's well-known resources in which they place too much trust, its banking system, its school of ophthalmology, its famous salve, its textile trade. Uh, these were representative of three areas of life where the ancients placed a lot of trust, money, clothes, and health institutions, all of which were linked to 
idolatry. And so uh, William Hendrickson says, who is more to be pitied than someone who imagines that he's a fine Christian, but in reality the Christ himself is utterly disgusted with him. And that's really what you see here behind the imagery of you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. You say you're this, but you don't realize you're that. He's very disgusted with this church. Sometimes people look at this and they conclude, is it even a church? Well, it has to be a church. He calls it a church, to the church uh, in Laodicea. And uh, there are believers there. You will find out as we go on. But notice, he says there in verse 18, he's speaking to the church as a whole. He says, I advise you to buy from me. I love that. You see, Jesus knows how to communicate on their level. They're very affluent people. They don't need anything, and if they determine that they do need something, they're going to pay for it, okay? They're going to pay for it. And so Jesus is wanting them to see their need of Him, and He says, I want you to buy from me. Now, hang on with me. I'm not going where you think I'm going. But He says, I want you to buy from me. See, just using that language, they're like, okay, all right, how much? I got this, all right? But notice how he puts it. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you can see. So he's basically saying, uh, a while ago he said, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Here he's saying, you're, you're poor, and I want you to buy gold from me so that you can be rich. He says, you're naked, and so I want you to buy white clothes for me so you may be dressed. And he says, you're blind, and I want you to come to me and, and use this ointment to put on your eyes so you can see. Now, if you're wondering, like, like me, you're going, wait a minute, Brother Corey. I thought salvation is not something you can buy. Yes and no. Okay? Somebody paid for it. Isn't that right? Jesus did. He purchased our salvation, but not with silver or gold. You know, Peter wrote about that in his epistle. We've been redeemed, but not by silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? So our salvation is a purchase. God's purchased, purchased it on our behalf. It costs the lifeblood of His one and only Son. And Jesus is saying to this group of believers, I advise you to buy from me. And what I want you to say is, where have we heard that before? Well, I'll tell you where we've heard it before. In Isaiah the prophet, chapter 55, verse 1, the prophet cries out, Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water, and you without silver, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. There it is, without cost. He's saying, come and buy from me, even if you don't have silver, even if you don't have gold. Come and buy without cost. It's free even though it's been bought and paid for. That's what salvation is. God offers the free gift of eternal life to anybody that would come to Him. So that's what I want us to realize about God's grace. 
It might be free to you and I, but it's not cheap because it costs God His one and only Son. Okay, Our salvation still costs something, but Jesus is the one that has paid it all. And when we come to Him and put our faith and trust in Him, He credits that to our account as righteousness. That's what the Bible teaches. Um, here's another, um, I call this a, um, well... If I were to express salvation in economic terms, I think this is the best way to say it. It comes from 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. It's Paul the Apostle talking to the church at Corinth. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. I mean, that's how you would express the gospel in economic terms or language. Jesus, the one and only Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the Father, leaving heaven to come to earth, born as a babe in Bethlehem. He walks and lives among us. He lives a sinless, perfect life. And ultimately, He goes and lays down His life on the cross, sheds His blood, and purchases our salvation. And so He, Jesus, who was rich, for our sake became poor, He gave it all, so that by His poverty, what He did for us on our behalf, we might become rich. Boy, that's good, isn't it? Sign me up for that. That's salvation in economic language. And that's what Jesus is calling out to these here who are putting their trust in their money rather than in God. I mean, I wonder today how many people put their trust in money when our own currency says, in God we trust. Isn't that ironic? And so here, he advises them, come to me, buy from me, but buy, as Isaiah the prophet would say, without cost. Um, And then he says this in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Yes, it really was a church. There were some saved people there, but they had gotten really lukewarm in their walk with God. And so God uh, rebukes and disciplines those he, He loves. That reminds us of the proverb that's quoted in Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, 5, it says, And you have forgotten the exhortation that, de- that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you're reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and punishes every son He receives. The fact that God disciplines us is proof that He loves us and it's proof that we belong to Him. Okay? Uh, he, he has the rod of God for the child of God. And so he loves us. He will rebuke us. He will correct us. He will discipline us because we bear his name. We wear his name. And so he says, be zealous and repent. And then we have probably one of the most misinterpreted, misapplied verses in the Bible. Okay, right here in the next verse. Uh, Revelation three twenty. See, or behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And many a times that uh, verse is used, you know, to witness to people and say, God, you know, the, the, the Lord Jesus is knocking on your heart and you need to let him in. And I, I understand the application. That, that's one way you can apply that verse. But when you want to interpret the intended meaning of that verse, you've got to look at what it says and you've got to look at the context of it. And here in this context, he's talking to a church called Laodicea. And they are lukewarm Christians. And where is Jesus? He's outside the church, knocking on the door, basically saying, let me in. Yeah, I can understand now why um, Steve Gaines told a story many years ago when he was a uh, college student. He was serving at a church and they were getting ready for revival. And it was a Wednesday night like this, and they were taking prayer requests like we were a moment ago. And uh, people were, you know, saying, well, I want to pray for my neighbor. I want to pray for a family member or a friend. And we're going to invite everybody, you know, and, and we're going to pray that God, you know, does a great work in their lives. And, and finally, uh, Steve Gaines, he says, <clears throat> he says, I raised my hand. He's a college student. He's on the back row. He raises his hand and he says, Shouldn't we ask God to show up? And he says at the time, some of them look, like, look at him like, you know, who are you? You know, like, what are you thinking? You know, uh, you know uh, assuming that, hey, we're in God's house, of course he's going to show up. But that's not what he meant. What he was saying is, are we going to invite God to come to church? Matter of fact, uh, years later, he actually wrote a book, When God Comes to Church. It's a good book, by the way, by Steve Gaines. Where we focus on the manifest presence of God. We seek God. We want Him to inhabit the praises of His people. We want Him to show up. We want God to move when we gather as His children in His name. And so here I think of that because here is Jesus and He's saying, you're so lukewarm that I can't use you. You know, when water's cold, it's refreshing. When water's hot, it can be nice to take a, a, a great bath. But when water is lukewarm, I just want to spit it out. And Jesus is saying to the church, you're like that water that I'm fixing to spit out. And you don't realize that you really aren't what you think you are. I advise you to do this. I'm doing this because I love you. I'm rebuking you because I love you. I'm disciplining you because I love you. Be zealous and repent. See! I'm at the door, and I'm knocking. And that's to everyone. But the call, the invitation is personal. If anyone, okay, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. I like that, and I'll tell you why. Because as a pastor through the years, sometimes people get stuck. They get complacent. They get lukewarm in their walk with God. And then to make themselves feel better, they start comparing themselves to other people. Well, at least I don't do so-and-so like so-and-so and this, that, and the other. And then they've got to start finding fault with other things because they really don't want to deal with what they see in the mirror, right? And so they begin to find fault with other people in the church and all of that. 
And then finally, they just tell people, well, I, I just don't like this and I don't like that. And then when you begin to tell them, look, everybody has their own little solar system and we all carry our weather with them. And if you don't like the weather that you have, then change your attitude and you might get a better forecast. Okay? <laughs> and so when they hear that, like, oh, no, no, no. You know, I, I've heard people through the years, you know, I just, I can't worship, I can't do this. Listen, the New Testament tells us that you and I, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay? You are a child of God. You, you belong to the Lord. You've been purchased by His own blood. You were indwelt by His own Spirit. Your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You carry Him with you wherever you go. You ought to be having church wherever you go. And so here He says, look, other people might be lukewarm, but what are you going to do when you hear my voice? When I call your name, are you, you personally, individually, are you going to open the door so that I can come in and we can have that fellowship like we used to? I'll come in and eat with you and you with me. Michael Kukendall says, Jesus is on the outside requesting entrance into his own church. The invitation issued by Christ suggests the future wedding supper of the Lamb. It's mentioned in chapter 2, 17. You see it again at the end of the book in chapter 19, verse 9. But more so, it reflects a present foretaste of the intimacy available to each person who responds to Christ. Jesus is inviting the Laodiceans to realize how they have shut Him out of their lives with their own self-sufficiency. And so Jesus delivers not only the invitation in verse 20, but now he gives them a promise, just like he has all of the other six churches. Look, if you will, in verse 21. To the one who conquers or overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Beale, commentator Beale, says this. He says, For those who do renew their zeal for Christ and return to Him, whatever they've lost in the scheme of this world will be more than compensated for by their share and rulership in the eternal kingdom of God. If they do not renew their zeal, of course, they may not experience the joy of that kingdom at all. The description of the church at Laodicea is probably uncomfortably close to the situation of the church in our own culture and time. We must adjust our priorities to place the kingdom of God first and be willing to give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose, which is our share in the kingdom of God. It's interesting. This Jesus is talking to them. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the amen. He is the originator of God's creation, which reminds them that everything was created by Him, through Him, and for Him. This is our living Lord who is speaking to this church. He's saying exactly what He sees because He knows their works and He knows their hearts. And yet He promises to them, if you overcome, if you conquer... I'll give you the right to sit with me on my throne. And that's true authority. 
He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. So I guess here's the takeaway tonight. How should you and I respond to complacency in our walk with Christ? Let's be honest. There are times when we go through highs and we go through lows. There are times when we don't feel as close to God as we used to be. And there are times when we just don't feel like doing anything. And it's in those times that we need to examine ourselves the most. How do we respond to complacency? Number one, receive His rebuke. Sometimes we can get mad at God because He tells us something we don't want to hear. You know, I've often wondered sometimes if the reason why people don't read their Bibles as they should is because God speaks to them about something they don't want to talk about. And so they just kind of ignore him for a while. Well, I'll pray tomorrow. And then the next day, well, I'll, I'll talk about it later, Lord. Maybe, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, maybe next week. And they, they come to church and maybe they say a little prayer before bedtime or before a meal. And maybe they read just a little bit of their Bible because they, it's a good habit. But when it comes to really letting God show up in their life and, and penetrate their heart, they kind of keep Him, you know, at a distance. Um, if you think about it, the Bible says that God's Word is inspired by God and it's useful for four things, for um, teaching, for correction, for re- rebuking, and for training in, in righteousness. When you look at those four purposes of God's Word, two of them are negative and two of them are positive. And if you want to be really honest, what that tells me is half the time when we read God's Word, God might be using it to tell us something we don't want to hear. And that's why James says that we need to be quick to speak, or excuse me, slow to speak and quick to listen. Wait a minute, I got the order wrong. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, right? And not be hearers of the word, uh, but doers of the word. So when God speaks to us, it's possible that part of the time or even half the time, he's going to speak something to us that we really don't want to hear. But because he is the Lord, because he is the faithful and true witness, because he is the amen, because he is the originator of God's creation, he's the one that everything's created by, through, and for Because He is our King of kings and Lord of lords, we need to receive His rebuke. Receive His rebuke and repent of our complacency. Matter of fact, I find it interesting and ironic all at the same time. In these other letters to these other churches, whenever He deals with sin, He says, repent. But here in Laodicea, He's got to add a little bit more fire to it to get them up and going and moving and motivated. And what does he do? He says, be zealous and repent. Okay, I mean, he's really trying to add some fuel to that fire. He says, repent of your complacency. And then, of course, if we're willing to receive God's rebuke, if we're willing to repent of our complacency, then we're able to respond to his invitation When he says, see, I stand at the door and I knock. That literally, when you study that in the original language, he's standing there and he's not going anywhere and he's going to keep on knocking. He's going to keep on knocking until we hear his voice and open the door and let him come in. 
Perhaps you've seen, I, I, I enjoy Christian art when I see it. I, I love some really good art. There's a couple pieces I've seen through the years that I just love. One of them is this, and it's, it's a picture of this verse where there is a door and Christ is knocking on it. And if you look closely at the picture, there's a doorknob on one side. Yes, and it's not his, is it? It's your side. He's knocking. Will you let him in? You know, God is the perfect gentleman. He won't impose himself. You remember that free will thing? Uh, he won't impose himself. He's wanting us to come to him. He's wanting us to respond to him. He's wanting us to receive his rebuke, repent of our complacency, and respond to his invitation. So my challenge to you tonight is simple. Will you refuse to live a casual Christian life, a complacent life? Will you seek to enjoy fellowship with the Lord and be that instrument that he can use rather than spit out of his mouth? Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for this word from the word. And Lord, I pray that anytime we get comfortable, anytime that we get complacent, Father, I pray that you would speak to us, that we might be zealous and repent and receive the rebuke. Repent of our complacency and respond to your invitation to have a closer walk with you and to be a tool in your hand that you can use to do your will and your work and your kingdom and in this world. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.